The Athletic. On this episode, a breakdown of the age 39, helped by a driver who's on pace for a career year at age 39. Plus, we'll answer some of your great questions about speed, qualifications, road course viewing. We may even talk a different form of racing. But first, this is episode 24 of Positive Regression. This one's obvious. This is the Jeff Gordon edition of Positive Regression. Where do you even begin, David? It's Jeff freaking Gordon. Maybe I call him the most significant driver of my lifetime, David, because he is the driver I remember from the beginning of his career, rookie year. Remember when we came in, you know, people of our age, 1993, Jeff Gordon was a rookie and I was able to see him at the beginning and throughout his entire career and even work with him now. So to me, he is the most significant driver of my lifetime. I was a Rusty fan, obviously, you know, Dale Earnhardt, Jimmy Johnson, I've, I've seen them all, but in terms of significance, Jeff Gordon does it for me. That's a really good point. There are NASCAR fans that weren't alive or or present, I, maybe I should say, for uh, when Dale Earnhardt was really doing his thing. I think to some, Dale Earnhardt has taken on uh, an Elvis uh, quality, like maybe they respect him, but they don't really remember him. They remember Jeff Gordon, oh, yeah. and for for good reason. He was one of the greatest to ever do it, for sure. That rookie season in 1993, he was 21 years old. I remember that Daytona 500 telecast doing a small uh, segment on him, and he was playing uh, Sega Genesis in in uh, in the little segment. But uh, a 1.5 peer as a rookie, uh, and then went on to have perhaps the greatest four-year production stretch of the modern era between 1995 to 1998, he earned peers of 4.371, and 6.424. We haven't seen a better production rating since. Uh, He won three championships during that stretch, if you're into that sort of thing. Alan, success... In a driver's age 39 season takes many forms. Jeff Gordon's career was front loaded and that time frame was tied to Ray Evernham's tenure as crew chief. But Gordon's age 39 season came in 2011. He won three times that year, ending a three year run in which he only won once over, uh, over that span. So for him, age 39 was a slump buster. David, one of the best memories I have of Jeff Gordon, you mentioned later in his career, up to his last race and his last run at Homestead, the last run of the race. Remember, he was in the championship four competing for a title, and the best uh, part of his race was the last run of the race where he was, I think he had the fastest speeds of his entire night. I think he ended up finishing six in that race, which was the best he had run all night. It, It was just it was so cool to see him close his career on such a high note, competing for a championship and charging at the end. I know he didn't get it done, but uh, and this is coming from someone who hated Jeff Gordon for many, many years for obvious reasons, David. But to see him able to close the career like he did nearly on top, I thought that was very cool. Yes, and um, plenty of respect to him. He really it was almost a renaissance of sorts in his uh his late career i mean he was going to africa uh looking into like food waste problems that was a part of that aarp uh sponsorship uh he he aged like fine wine but oh you made an interesting point uh back when you said you oh. hated him hated. I thought, so 
Okay, so you were a Rusty Wallace fan, so let's yep. let's think about this for mm-hmm, a second, okay? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mark Martin fans probably not liking Jeff Gordon. No, nope. Ricky Rudd fans remember this that that was a beloved driver who he didn't get his championship, and that was kind of an uh, point in his career where maybe he could have. Gordon was was right there. Was Jeff Gordon the most despised driver ever? Wow, that's a most despised. It's crazy to think and say that now because it almost sounds like such a negative, but I, I'll go with yes. And, and most despised, I think we just have to preface that with to be the most despised, you have to be also maybe the most respected or one of the most respected. The level of, uh, what's the word? Despisement? Desposition? <laughs> I don't even know what the word is, but the level oh, of gosh. hate that Jeff Gordon had, right? Comes, you only get that level of hatred and vitriol from somebody if you actually really respect the hell out of them. And that was the deal with Jeff Gordon. I hated Jeff Gordon because he was so damn good and he would knock Rusty out of the way and win the race and Rusty wouldn't. And Jeff Gordon would win championships and Jeff Gordon would dominate. And I hated every second of it. And that is nothing but a sign of respect. Well, now he's a colleague of yours at uh, Fox Sports, <laughs> so everything just comes full circle. It doesn't it? And we did one of our Ride to Works uh, prior to him being a colleague, and I was able to tell him how much I disliked him at one point in his life and that I was a Rusty fan, and you know what he did? He, he like, laughed at me. He literally, I mean, he, he got a smile on his face and laughed at me in almost an apologetic way, like, ha, 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 I know I ruined your life. I'm so sorry. But it was also smiling because of all the success he had. It was a, it was a funny, memorable moment for me. And now that I can call him a colleague. And David, what the, the crazy part is the longer he's been retired and the more you look back on it, the better in my mind he gets to me. You know what I mean? I, I think of how awesome Jimmy Johnson is and all the wins, 84 wins, all that stuff. And Jeff Gordon has 90 plus. It's like, wow, Jeff Gordon was that damn good. All right. And enough Jeff Gordon love. Uh, that's far too much Jeff Gordon love for me anyway. Uh, let's get this episode started in terms of David, someone of significance turned 39 last week. And that someone is Martin Truex Jr. And you know how much we love the age 39 here on the Positive Regression podcast. And wouldn't you know it? Mr. Truex Jr. just happens to be on pace for a career year right now, already with four wins in 2019. Isn't that a coincidence, David, on his age 39 season? I mean, look, it's a, an eight-win pace, uh, which based on history is a number that symbolizes a great season. He is currently at a 3.882 peer. That is not better than the 4.22 he earned in 2017. But if we take into account the change in teams from Furniture Row to Joe Gibbs Racing, maybe that could serve as the culprit here uh, in some of his off races, uh, as we'll put it, and add to that uh, legitimate unknowns about the rules package coming into 2019. I think that may have been the same for everyone, but he and Cole Pern having to figure that out with new people, new uh, a new working environment. A strong second half isn't out of the question, but uh, I don't know. I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. You were uh, you were in that media center at Chicago Land Speedway. You raised your hand. You asked a question. 
you let him know about age 39. What what does he think about it? Yeah, like, look, surprisingly, there are some people who may not know about the age 39 phenomenon. And I was uh, up in Chicagoland and he was in uh, the press conference room, the media center. And I was able to ask him, I said, you know, Martin, there are uh, analytics and numbers that show the age 39 uh, on average is a driver's peak performance. Uh, what do you think about that? And uh, it's not something he never really thought of or maybe heard of. He needs to start listening to more positive regression and reading more motorsports analytics. But he answered, I, I've got his quote here. It's a little bit of a, I'll tell you how he answered. I asked him the question. This is what he said. He goes, I feel like there's always room to improve. I think the biggest thing with our sport is not only do you have to try to get better all the time, but so many things change. This is a perfect example. We came off a great year last year, almost won a championship. Now we have all different cars, all different rules. They run differently, race differently. It's just a challenge to do this job. It's definitely fun, but it's a huge challenge. But I think that's what makes it fun. David, what I take from that is, just as he said, things are always changing. If you want to keep your spot in this sport, you, you're almost forced to improve if it's not just your natural ability to do so in your racing career. But with the changes come forcing you to adapt and those abilities show out. And something about the age 39, maybe all that adaptability, uh, it all comes to uh, it all comes together when you're being forced to change and readapt and learn. And and maybe there's a maturity to it. You could explain a little more about just why it maybe it peaks at age 39. But those were his thoughts behind it. You know what I love about his quote? I can quantify it uh, because he he absolutely is rolling with the punches with this rules package. He's an above par passer with this package. And his passing is the thing I think about when I think of Martin Truex and how he improved. Uh, he really worked to progress as a passer. He was a below par passer when he was at Michael Waldrop racing. When he joined Furniture Row that first season, he was a below par passer and improved each year he was there. And the team's improvement jived along with his evolution uh, of his passing ability, he is now airtight as far as track position goes. An excellent restarter uh, as well. I know he has had some prominent uh, losses as a result to late race restarts, um, but those singular data points get in the way of uh, the overarching data point, which is he's a really good restarter. He is an all-around good driver, and when given speed, yeah, you're going to see seasons like he had in 2017, 2018 was really good. Well, I, I shouldn't gloss over the last year. And then already this year, four wins in the first half of a season with a new team. That's pretty solid. Yeah. And his new teammate, Kyle Busch, you know, both under the, the Joe Gibbs racing banner, under the same building, tied with Kyle Busch in terms of wins. That was the big storyline in Chicago land in terms of the writers and people asking questions. The friendly rivalry between teammates, Kyle Busch, and Martin Truex Jr. Um, you know, they, they were both asked the question. They both deemed it as friendly. Uh, they both had some fun with it. Certainly, there's always going to be something held back from the driver's seat, right? The guy holding the steering wheel will always know something that they will not share with the other guy holding the steering wheel. Even though there's so much data, there's so much information now, all of it can be shared with the teams, with just about your opponents. The other teams can have access to so much, but there's always going to be a little th- stuff held back. But do you see it as a rivalry, and do you see these two shaping up to really be the, the two top competitors, maybe with each other when it comes to a title? Hmm. 
I I hadn't heard of such a thing until uh, this past weekend, ironically, when NBC took over the uh, the telecasts. Uh, so to me, this feels a little manufactured. I don't think there was ever any personal beef between the two drivers, uh, nor were these two guys clearly consumed with beating each other. Uh, this is not James Hunt, Nikki Lauda. There will not be a Ron Howard movie about this in 30 years. But Kyle Busch serves as a benchmark upon which Truex's season will probably be graded. Uh, he did previously in the, uh, in the last two years. Uh, it, it takes on a, a, a more, um, it takes on more resonance now that they're both under the Joe Gibbs racing roof. With half the season under our belts, David, I mean, uh, I know those are the questions being asked between Martin Truex Jr. and Kyle Busch about a rivalry. They're both tied with wins now. What do you envision for the second half? Uh, is, is Martin Truex Jr. having to outduel Kyle Busch for a title? Let me flip that around on you. If you had to pick surefire championship contenders right now based on what you learned in the first half of the season, who are they? Kyle Busch. Martin Truex Jr., both of the Penske cars. I, I, I'm sorry, Ryan Blaney. I mean, Joey Logano and Brad Keselowski. Um, <laughs> both, both of the, we're leaving that in. Both of the winning, <laughs> both of the winning Penske cars. That was a, that was a bad slip. But, uh, those, those four, JGR, two JGR, two Penske. Those are the one, those are the four I'm going with. Okay. Judging by how, Bush and Truex performed on the moderate 1.5 milers this year. I don't think either of them should be considered championship favorites yet. What? I would reserve no, no. I would reserve that designation for Keselowski, Logano, who have both won, Harvick, who's had the speed, and then maybe Alex Bowman if he survives the playoffs until Homestead. Because keep in mind, Truex and Bush have been flummoxed on the moderate 1.5 mile tracks. Truex spoke to this even after his win at Charlotte, which is a, a steep 1.5 miler. And we saw Kyle Bush at Chicagoland. Uh, let's be real. It was a horror show for the 18 team. I think both of those teams have some things to work on. You know, lest we forget, the championship isn't going to go to the best team. It's going to go to the team that jumps through all the proper hurdles to get there, and then you have to perform at Homestead. I don't know that they're there yet, but Truex and Bush do strike me as two guys that could have the best all-around seasons, and I think it's possible that Truex could outduel Bush. They have similar passing numbers. Their crew chiefs, uh, I believe are separated by only 5% for their retention rates on green flag pit cycles. Uh, these are similar teams. At the very least, Truex has a coin flips chance of having a better season than Bush, given what we know right now. And David, we should always point out to the listeners, you know, on this podcast, on Positive Regression, we talk about performance and things we can quantify, not necessarily in the rules that they are doing it in. What I mean by that is the playoff system, because the final four go to three of the winners prior to Homestead and then the one with the most points after that, right? So not, again, as you said, not necessarily the best teams. It's how the rules play out that determine the championship, not necessarily – it doesn't just go to the best team. So that's something to always remember when listening to our podcast. 
Let's move on to some listener questions we asked at the end of our last episode, and you guys always deliver, all you listeners, it's so nice, the questions you give to David and I, because they're smart, it shows we are talking with a great, smart audience, and so we're going to answer some of the questions, it's awesome. Uh, let's start with Mick Rose on Twitter, who asks, when a driver's central speed improves over the course of the season, does his restart and passing numbers improve along with it? Great question, David. When a driver gets faster, does everything else get better? Okay, this is a good question uh, from Mick because there is one correlation that we can speak to. Speed and preferred groove restart retention rates historically have a strong correlation. Uh, even right now, down the line, Truex, Kozlowski, Kyle Busch, Clint Boyer, Blaney, Jones, Harvick, these are top guys from the preferred groove. Uh, also among the fastest in the sport. But from the non-preferred, look at some of the names. Chris Busher, William Byron are both top five guys. They do not have uh, that same kind of speed. Non-preferred groove restarts typically cater to those willing to dive into the deep water and do some uh, pretty unseemly stuff. But that's that's just kind of the, the cost of doing business. I mean, you're already at a statistical disadvantage a driver is going to need to go out of his comfort zone or put the car in front of him out of his comfort zone uh, in order to uh, just defend position. As for passing, let's think about what good speed does to a car. It It pushes a car up the running order where a driver will now compete against, hopefully, most of the time, a better brand of passer. So speed will make a driver's running whereabouts, but not necessarily his passing ability. Hmm. Let's take Reed Sorensen, for instance. Among all drivers this season, Reed Sorensen's surplus passing value is the best. Full stop. That is real. It is not an aberration. Explain the that a little further. Why, <laughs> yes. The, the reason why he's number one is because he's an experienced driver riding among the backmarkers, and he isn't remotely challenged by Cody Ware and Quinn Huff. Next to them, Sorensen looks like a killer. If Sorensen had better equipment, faster equipment, he'd run higher in the running order, and his surplus value would likely take a hit. Uh, and that's just the dynamic. Uh, so speed... Not necessarily making a passer. Uh, it goes in the inverse uh, direction as well. Kevin Harvick has the second fastest car. We've talked about on this podcast. He's having a problem with passing this year. Still a bottom seven passer uh, as we head into the second half of the season. Interesting question. Even more interesting answer. Thank you, Mick Rose. Up next, another listener question. William Soquet asks on Twitter, I'd love your take on Andy Sice's Cup Series debut coming up at New Hampshire. He's made just one Truck Series start, but won two Southern Modified Championships and had good ARCA runs on the drafting tracks. Uh, this got some attention on Twitter for uh, this week, maybe for the wrong reasons. And I say that, uh, look, Andy Sice making his debut in Cup at New Hampshire. He's a New Hampshire guy. I think it's awesome. I think he's fine. He is an accomplished race car driver. He is not a danger. He is a proven good racer. Uh, I think this blew up because people are kind of sensitive and took 
it the wrong way. I think what I, from what I saw on Twitter, the initial comment, David, about Andy's debut was more of maybe a perception one and the lack of an ideal ladder system in the sport in terms of, you know, pie in the sky. Yeah, everyone would do some series in trucks. Everyone would do some seasons in Xfinity. And then you would move up naturally the progression to the big leagues and then make your cup debut uh, and have it be a spectacular thing. Uh, I think that's the point that was trying to be made on Twitter. And then others took it as, oh, you know, our, our local guy racer is being criticized for getting into a... Uh, <laughs> For, for getting into a cup race with money and all that stuff. And I don't, I didn't really read into that anything like that, but that's just my take on it. I, I am happy for Andy to be making his debut and I think it's well earned. And again, he's an accomplished racer. I'm happy that he'll be able to say he was a cup driver. Yeah. And, and William said it in the question championship winning driver in what was a regional division of NASCAR. That's important to know. Um, I've seen Andy race a lot. Uh, I'm local to, uh, the Southern modified scene back when it was in existence and saw him race in New Smyrna. Uh, he's not a slouch. Andy Sice is a strange hill to die on when questioning NASCAR's process here, uh, which I do have intimate knowledge of having helped young drivers in the past, uh, gain approval. So let me shed some light on that. Drivers do not get wholesale approval to compete in any one series. They are approved to run certain tracks based on the tracks they've previously competed on. Uh, using Sice as an example, in his career, he's competed mostly on bull rings and half miles and some mile tracks. Based on his experience on the track size, I'm going to assume he's approved for Cup Series tracks a mile and under, excluding Dover. In order for him to gain approval for anything beyond that, then he'd probably have to run truck or Xfinity uh, a mile and a half uh, or more in order to hit the prerequisites for which NASCAR is desiring. And that's sort of the direction it goes uh, for all drivers, not necessarily series to series, but track size to track size. I don't feel as if Sice will struggle to adapt to the car or the track uh, as much as he'll have the usual rookie struggles with the talent level at the Cup Series, but that's normal. Yeah, and again, the the initial criticism of this, I did not read it as an Andy Sice issue. I read, I read no. it as a driver X with limited experience in terms of NASCAR National Series is suddenly making debut on the big stage. And for some, that's an odd perception. Uh, a few years ago, it happened when New Hampshire, I think, uh, had the playoff race. And all of a sudden, there was someone making their debut during a playoff race. And to some, that's like, what the hell's going on here? You know, this person's never been in a cup race in a cup car. Uh, no matter how accomplished you are, uh, a cup car is different. <laughs> it is the major leagues. Uh, and certainly, there, you know, there will be practice and everything. But I, I think initially it's just a perception issue. But when you dig down, David, I think we just learned a lot about how you qualify and how you are tested on your qualifications to make a debut like this. Yeah, and there's just there's never going to be um, a lot of transparency. NASCAR tries to keep that in house, but, uh, it's, it's laps completed on track size is what they, uh, what they look at. And Andy size for someone that's only competed on short tracks is an experienced racer. Good stuff. Good stuff. Next up, a listener question from Norm Ford on Twitter. This was specifically to David. 
wouldn't home TV viewing of races, especially Sonoma, benefit from aerial views produced by drones and blimps? Sonoma is nearly an unwatchable experience. Whatever, Norm. <laughs> As a Fox employee, I don't speak for Fox, but yes, sure, it may be ideal to have a blimp or a helicopter hover for three hours, but that's not realistic. We all love those shots, and sometimes we do get them for uh, short periods at a time. Again, I, I'm no uh, TV production expert, but you can't just have those shots for three straight hours. Uh, but thank you for watching. Uh, David, I, I see where he's going with this, especially in places like uh, uh, Sonoma and Watkins Glen. I mean, one of the best shots of the year is that helicopter shot when it follows them for laps around Watkins Glen. But doing it for a full race just doesn't seem realistic. So I like where Norm is going. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. But uh, Norm, you come across as a jerk sometimes. Oh gosh. Um, so, okay. I, look, no, not, not for a full race, but I'm all for a complete reset of the televised product. TV does not do the sport justice, but there's a reason for that. These facilities, all of them uh, that we go to are miles long and cause logistical nightmares. We'll see this next week. Uh, it starts this weekend, the tour de France, We'll get steady doses of helicopter footage that give necessary vantage points of the leaders in relationship to the peloton. And the same can be done here in smart doses. As it stands, for me, it feels as if the camera angles are getting tighter. Uh, and I, I believe that's by design to avoid getting empty grandstands in the in the TV frame at times that is very noticeable on restarts uh i i have not been getting much visual clarity on restarts lately uh that seems counterintuitive to the advent of stages i i but i i'm not sure what's going on there i would say instead of changing the brand of racing to fit the frame why don't we widen the frame to fit the brand of racing there may be a happy medium here, Alan. I, I I do think it's worth looking into. All right. Well, uh, I can't speak for that, but maybe we'll all be happy one day. We, we need you to get promoted at Fox so you can make this happen. So start climbing the ladder and then we can make some serious change. We'll see what happens over there. But uh, listener, you know, all our listeners, smart listeners, great questions this week. Really appreciate them as we look toward Daytona, which is uh, kind of the midpoint of the season, right? We are resetting. We're going back to Daytona, uh, where we started the season back in February. And don't forget, this is the final time the summer Daytona race will be run in July, on July 4th weekend. I mean, this tradition that's been there for decades. This race will move to the end of the regular season. Don't forget that. This uh, super speedway race, you know, with all the gambles and all the, the craziness, will end the regular season and may just deliver a surprise winner one day. At least it has that drama and that, that intrigue. David, it's the last one July 4th weekend, at least for the foreseeable future. Uh, what do you think about that as a Daytona guy? Do you care? I was raised in Daytona. Um, this race is moved to late August is the time frame. Alan, do you know what I was usually doing in Daytona in late August? Uh, getting ready for school. Evacuating from hurricanes. <laughs> oh, that's a good uh, point. Look, my, I, wife, I, uh, my wife, an awesome reporter, uh, I should have known that question because she's been down there for hurricanes in that time of year. I don't know if this is going to last. Uh, <laughs> I will say that this race has been 
uh, so lackluster in recent years that any feeling of nostalgia I had for this race is just gone. My only hope is that maybe as the last race in the regular season, some decorum can return to the field eliminating these crash fests of the last few years. This used to be um, a great race. It signified the beginning of summer. And I, I just recall Dale Earnhardt was always dominant and he would close the deal in these races where he wouldn't in the, uh, in the Daytona 500. But it's always a good time. It was, uh, it was good when it moved to night. Uh, those initial night races were sights to behold, but I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe I'm just a, uh, skeptical adult nowadays, but uh, move, move it whenever you like. It, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter to me, but, uh, going, going right into the heart of hurricane season, I've, I've seen better ideas, Alan. I don't know. That, that's interesting. Something I hadn't thought of because I don't live down there. Uh, I mean, I like it. I, I certainly care that they're moving it because I, I like Daytona. I, I, I do like tradition. I'm somewhat old school. You know, I love that it served as the reset, right? We you know, That's where we start. We go through the first half of the season, and then you kind of take a breath. It's the holiday weekend. It's Daytona. You, you always associated the two together. So from that aspect, I, you know, I, I will miss it. I, lo- I do like the tradition of it. People still say Firecracker 400 and still uh, long for the 10 a.m. start so that everyone can go to the beach. You know, I love those old stories, but uh, I will love the – chaos that will come with the end of the regular season i'm sorry but sometimes you just want to see the world burn is that is that the quote david and uh, i guess i'm one of the I, I guess i'm one of those people you you don't like all the chaos that comes with a potential uh super speedway race to end the regular season i i look forward to it i look forward to the aggression and uh look yeah that's what i'm looking forward to so as much as i hate to see the tradition go i, I like that they're putting it at the end of the regular season i think that's damn exciting you know, that's all perception, right? Like we're running this race regardless in the regular season and it Good counts point. just yes. the same. It's just been moved to the end. I so know. It, it maybe, maybe there's the additional drama of this is the final shot. But for most of these guys, they kind of already know going into this weekend that it's their final shot to lock into the playoffs. So what really changes here? I don't know, but I will tell you in August 2020 when we're there. People are really there. mad about it. <laughs> I know. And look, people hate changing tradition. And look, we saw what happened when uh, Darlington was moved, right? I mean, a, a lot of things have moved and a lot of things have gone back. But uh, in the continual shakeup of the schedule, uh, some things had to move around and, and some pieces had to go elsewhere. And for this one year, at least, remember, there's something new possibly coming in 2020. So maybe some odd way, this is only a one year thing that we see in, I'm sorry, 2021. Maybe this is in something we only see for 2020. We'll just have to see. But if it only happens once, then even better. I- I'm just happy to that we'll see it at least once. So that that's a way in the future. So let's talk about this weekend, David. What do, what do we hope to see in Daytona? What do you want to see in Daytona? I want to see the field treat this race as if it were a race at Talladega, uh, because Talladega gets a bad rap for its crashes and the big one. But Daytona has been asking NASCAR fans to hold its beer for the last few years. Uh, the lawlessness of this track and this 400 mile race in particular is incredible. Leaders are getting crashed at high rates. Third place has gone from the safest position 
to the position most likely caught in a multi-car crash. Third place at Daytona included in 50% of the crashes there dating back to the 2017 500. That is brutal. The best strategy is to ride around in the rear of the field and hope you don't lose the draft. Uh, and, and that is in all seriousness. Outside of that, I don't know that you can devise a strategy until you're already a quarter through the race. I don't know that there's a clean method of survival um, that I see, but I do hope to be proven a liar with this weekend's race because I do want to see a good race. Uh, I thought Talladega was a good race earlier this year with this new rules package. Uh, a lot of other fans seem to like it. So let's just hope the field can mind its P's and Q's and produce a you know, classic Daytona finish. Well, see, I'm looking for just the opposite. I like, I like the aggressiveness. I like the Ricky Stenhouse juniors of last year where everyone comes, ends that race and everyone's pissed off at him. That's just what I like to see. I want to see. I, you know, I was really going to go out of my way to not mention Ricky Stenhouse <laughs> in this entire episode. And there you go. And, and you mentioned the word pissed off. So it's perfect. We've, we've hit every, uh, Every detail. Yeah, it doesn't have to be Ricky, but uh, I wrote down here. I, I don't want any green flag pit stops. I don't know why those annoy me at plate tracks. They just well, and I keep saying plate tracks at super speedways. I just don't want any uh, green flag pit stops, and I want to see that aggression, and I want to see the pissed off people because that means people are going for it. And and at a track like this on a Saturday night, I, I want to see that happening like we saw last year. That's just me, David. I'm sorry. And Daytona, not the only racing happening this weekend. David, you talk about this to me a lot. I don't know much about it. The Tour de France starts soon. And I see it's a different form of racing. And I know you're a fan of it. And you will be watching. I don't know if you want to sell the rest of the listeners and myself on it. But what are you watching for this weekend when you will be tuning in to the Tour de France? Okay, so if you'll indulge me, this is a race, uh, a bicycle race, to be clear, that should appeal to the most intelligent NASCAR fans. It is heavy on strategy. It's easy on the eye, and there are a number of viewing options. You can watch all seven hours of coverage every day on NBC Sports Network. Uh, when I'm able to do, I find very compelling. Uh, or you can watch a condensed version of the race every night. But... Uh, briefly, I will give three reasons why you should watch this year's race. Number one, it is a wide open field. Uh, four time tour winner Chris Froome injured himself earlier this season and will not compete. Alan, he was so good in years past. He was kind of like Tiger Woods. Last year, the tour Froome proofed the course. Yeah. Remember tiger proofing uh -huh. Froome proof the course to make sure he didn't win. But this year, his team, team Enios will trot out joint leaders in Garrett Thomas, a Welshman and a uh, 22 year old Egon Bernal, last year's winner of the tour of California and the most famous Egon since Ghostbusters. I was going to make a slimer uh, joke. I'm glad you brought it up. Yes. For, and for those that don't think uh, joint leaders in cycling will work, uh, get over yourselves. Team orders are stupid. Plus, the same team proved it could work last year when Garrett Thomas won the tour over Froome. Uh, outside of those two, there is uh, Romain Bardet trying to become the first French winner in forever to win uh, the tour. Uh, and Julian Alaphilippe may be among the general classification riders to watch. Uh, but there's more than that. Uh, number two thing to watch, Team Quickstep, a.k.a. the Wolfpack, is one of the smartest teams in all of sports because they play moneyball in cycling. Only it hasn't been written about, and I know this because 
They parted ways with superstar Marcel Kittle after he dominated sprint stages in the 2017 tour. He found a new team, has not performed the same since. Uh, one of the reasons they parted with him was because they knew they had a young Fernando Gaviria in the pipelines. He broke out last year in the tour, and he left during the offseason for greener pastures. There's no telling who's next for them, but they're so smart. I'm sure they have a cogent plan, and I can't wait to see what it is. And number three, final reason, the American riders. America loves itself some America. So Team Education First has three good American riders in TJ Van Garderen, Lawson Craddock, and Taylor Fenney. But the one I'll be keeping a close eye on is a 30-year-old by the name of Chad Haga from McKinney, Texas, who shocked everyone earlier this year by winning the time trial stage and uh, a time trial stage. Imagine if qualifying counted as one race. That's what he did earlier this year in the Tour d'Italia. The dude can book it. Uh, stage two is a team time trial in the Tour de France. Stage 13 is an individual time trial. Usually I skip watching the individual time trials, but Mr. Haga has piqued my interest. I'll be watching. So should you, Alan. So should our listeners. Uh, cycling, give it a shot. It's a good time. I can't promise that. But between our full, <laughs> look, between our full Batman episode and the, the, the preview of the Tour de France we just gave, I, I, I just want to promise the listeners, we're not trolling you. We're just trying to make you better people. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So Good there show. you go. There you go. Yeah. You learned something uh, I bet you did not expect when tuning into this week's episode of Positive Regression, but I'm glad you did. And just remember, we are available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and Podbean. We have all your favorite devices covered. If you like what you're hearing, and I know you do because you send us the greatest questions, but make sure you leave us a rating or review as well. That does help this podcast gain visibility. Your help in spreading the word is appreciated. Tell all your friends, especially if they're NASCAR fans. If you have questions, we want to answer them on this podcast. We answered them this week. Reach out to us on Twitter at PosRagPod. We will answer more of them next week. David, what are you working on? This week on TheAthletic.com, I've profiled Tyler Reddick and Joey Logano. Um, Similar, as in both were champions last year who are performing better this year. And in my latest speed rankings, I analyzed the teams on the playoff borderline and gauged where they'll need to find speed in the next nine races in order to lock down one of the 16 playoff spots. Good stuff there and all your stuff and the, the full athletic crew uh, doing auto racing has just been doing great work since you guys started. So make sure everyone checks that out. If you are listening to this the morning it debuts on Thursday, first of all, thank you. You are a subscriber, but make sure you watch Race Hub tonight. I'll have two pieces on there. First of all, we are debuting our uh, summer series, What's in a Number? Uh, kind of going into the history and the fun of certain car numbers. And we are debuting with the number 18 uh, pieces that I will write and voice, and you'll hear all about them. They're well-researched and they're well done, and I think you will like them. Again, we start with the number 18, and I have a good one-on-one -on -one interview with Eric Jones uh, looking back on his Daytona victory that was wild and uh, crazy last year, that entire race, ended in overtime, 
and a little bit on where he may be going next year and what his status is. So make sure you tune into Race Hub on Thursday or just check out my Twitter account, which is now at Alan Kavana. Uh, the Copa is gone. At Alan Kavana. The Copa is gone officially, but will always be there in spirit, David. I assure you. I'm, I am I was shocked when I saw that. I thought it was like, I mean, it felt like a death, really. I'm sorry, but it's still there in spirit. Don't forget it. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this week's Positive Regression. Have a safe holiday weekend. Don't do anything stupid with uh, firecrackers. Come back and join us here next week. For David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. Stay positive, everybody. Thank you for listening. Join Tubi in celebrating Black History Month with the largest free collection of black cinema streaming every day of the year, including exclusive Tubi originals, Howard High, and Pass the Mic. Tubi. Watch free.